This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey guys, welcome to Pop Culture Confidential. I'm Christina Yerling-Biro. Thank you so much for joining me again. So the new season of Netflix Mindhunter was one of my most awaited shows of the year, and it turned out to be even more intense and brilliant than season one, which was not an easy feat. Now, not only do I get to deep dive into the writing and making of this season, I get to talk to one of the screenwriters on the show, who in just a few years has proven herself to be one of the sharpest and most nuanced writers out there. Liz Hanna burst onto the scene a couple years ago when her first screenplay, a spec script about Washington Post owner Kay Graham and her decision to publish the Pentagon Papers, was picked up by none other than Steven Spielberg. It became the Oscar-nominated The Post, starring Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks. Liz Hanna then went on to write the critically acclaimed comedy Long Shot, starring Charlize Theron and Seth Rogen. Now she's come on board Mindhunter Season 2 as a writer and producer. Behind the camera, David Fincher is back in the director's chair for the premiere and as exec producer. Season 1 was set in the late 70s, in the early days of criminal psychology and profiling. FBI agents Bill Tench and Holden Ford, as well as Dr. Wendy Carr, interview imprisoned serial killers in order to understand their psychology and to hopefully apply it to ongoing cases. In season two, they continue to develop the science of criminal profiling, interviewing killers like Ed Kemper, David Berkowitz, son of Sam, and Charles Manson, the prisoner who was at the top of the Behavioral Science Unit's interview wish list. The season also involves the investigation into the gruesome Atlanta child murders in the late 70s and early 80s. And the characters' personal lives, their trials and tribulations are brilliantly written and psychologically intertwined with the cases. Join me as I talk to screenwriter Liz Hanna, not only about some of the lessons that she picked up from Spielberg and Fincher, but also about getting into Charles Manson's head, writing and staging those interview scenes, which is some of the most intense TV that we've seen this year, what she's learned about profiling and predictive behaviors, and so much more. January 1974. They'd just moved in two months prior. My partner and I were first on the scene. He was feeling for a light when something bumped him. That's when we found the little girl hanging from this pipe. I found someone to take over who will be very good for the BSU. He wants to expand the unit, and he intends to make our approach practice. Tell me, who's the one you want more than anything? Manson. I'll get you, Manson. This is $100,000, and it's all yours if you help us identify the persons behind the murders of our children in Atlanta. Another child reported missing in Atlanta. I'm sending you both. I want you there for the duration. Welcome, Liz Hanna. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. 
So I was reflecting on your work here while I was doing some research. I was thinking The Post is a real journalism movie. You have long shots about political wonks and Mindhunter, which is really more cerebral conversation than action. And I get the feeling that you're really good at making bureaucrats and processes seem super exciting. And I was wondering where <laughs> you get that from. Well, I think I'm really good at uh, working with people who make me seem a lot smarter than I am is the big thing. Um, but I uh, I don't know. You know, I, I've, I've grown up being very inspired by projects that deal with real people and, and real jobs and, and real issues. And I don't think when I was growing up and watching these things, there was um, a loss of entertainment in watching them. And so that was a real priority for me when I was starting out and, and, you know, particularly with the post and with Longshot, was making a world that can seem inaccessible or can seem boring, you know, to people who are not involved, um, more accessible and more universal and, and really that it's, it's just another job that everybody has to go through. Now, these are real um, different genres that you've worked in, um, in in these projects. Do you prepare differently when you sit down to write them? Do you think in genre? Um, not really. You know, I, I've, I've been asked that before. And I think the thing for me really is the characters. Um, I, I gravitate towards characters. I, I gravitate really specifically to people that I'm going to work with. And, you know, with the post, that was something that I generated as a spec. And, and so that was, you know, me sitting at my kitchen table wanting to write something that I wanted to see and never thinking it would be made. And, um, but really the, the impetus of that was Kay Graham and loving her character and loving Ben Bradley's character and their journey. So can I ask you a hypothetical question? Oh dear, I don't like hypothetical questions. Well, I don't think you're gonna like the real one either. Do you have the papers? Not yet. This is a devastating security breach that was leaked out of the Pentagon. The most highly classified documents of the war. The Times has 7,000 pages detailing how the White House has been lying about the Vietnam War for 30 years. The way they lied, those days have to be over. For me, it's very genre. I, I'm very genre agnostic. I, I, you know, with Mindhunter, I mean, who would turn down an opportunity to work with David Fincher and and Charlize Theron, who's the executive producer on that, and and the amazing cast and and the rest of the crew um, involved in that. So, I that one was really a no brainer, and I was just hoping that they. Um, wouldn't realize that I might have not been the right person for the job at any given moment. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, for every project I do, it's, it's really about the characters and if there's a clear arc or an interesting arc, um, that I feel like I can stick, sink my teeth into. Both of the, um, your first project, um, the post and long shot, you have such terrific, um, uh, storylines about being the only woman in the room, so to speak. Yeah, I don't have any experience with that, so I don't know where that could come from. <laughs> no, neither <Yeah>. do I. 
We just watch it on, t- exactly. on film. Otherwise, things uh-huh. are great. Yeah, exactly. But you were alluding to this. Um, um, you are, for us screenwriting nerds, if, if that's a thing, um, you are you the stuff of legend, the fact that your um, first screenplay got picked up by Spielberg and his terrific producers. And and um, I remember you saying things. I was looking for where I had heard it, but I don't remember now. But sometimes around the when you were promoting the post, you said something like, Steven Spielberg acts like someone who works for Steven Spielberg and I thought that was hilarious <laughs> could you explain um wow I don't remember saying that but I like it um I'm sure I did it's all a bit of a blur um he is the he's one of the hardest working people I've ever met and and that shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody who knows who he is <laughs> not, not even personally but from afar um there's not a way for Steven Spielberg to become Steven Spielberg without having the work ethic he does. And he also at the same time, I think has such a real self-awareness of what he's done, what an audience expects of him, what an audience doesn't expect from him and how he can surprise them. Um, He has an incredible grasp of story. And so I think for him so much of how he works is really, what do I want to see and and what do you, what excites people about my work? And so it was really, uh, I mean, working with him and, and being on set with him was a masterclass in just how to be a filmmaker and how to be a creative and how to be in charge. I asked him one day on set, like really early on in production, I asked him if he still had fun making movies. And he was like, of course I have fun. I wouldn't do this if I didn't have fun. And I think that really set the tone for me, not only in in that film or on that film, but going forward in my career is that, you know, look, not everything is going to be fun every day and not everything is, is going to be like, you're excited to get up and, you know, drill through 25 pages of whatever you're drilling through. But the end game should be fun and, and you should be you should be enjoying it and you should feel like you're getting something out of it. And so that was really, I think, instructive to me starting out. Were there any specific storytelling wise? Was there something that you picked up from him that you, you know, that you've come to use after that was an aha moment for you? I mean, so many things. Um, I The one I think that to share that happened in our very first meeting, which was surreal and amazing was like Stephen was going through the script we were doing page notes and he said something like you should surprise the audience on every page and that was just not something I had really considered uh, as a thought you know as something that when I was going through a rewrite or when I was looking at a script to what is the surprise on this page for an audience and it doesn't mean that you know suddenly there's a gag and it doesn't mean that you know somebody trips and falls it just means what is the line of dialogue? What is the character choice? What is, you know, what is anything? And it can be anything, but what is that on the page that, that surprises them? And I, and I've, I've carried that through, um, in my work and, and it has, you know, I mean, I try and do it. I can't say I get it on every page, but I, um, I, I definitely think about it much more now when I'm writing. Well, you were saying that getting on to Mindhunter season two was was an incredible, and and I have to say congratulations. We're just all obsessed with it. I think I watched it oh. for nine hours straight. Um, the second season is even more tense and incredible uh, for it was. So really, congratulations to that. So I'd, I'd like Thank to get so in on that a bit first. 
tell me a little bit about the writer's room on season two. Who, who are you working with and how has the process been? It's really, you know, um, it was an exceptional process for me. Um, I got a, I got brought in when they had already started breaking stories. Um, Courtney Miles and Josh Donnan are the executive producers along with David and a few other people. When you're working with somebody like David, who is, frankly, for me, probably one of the three greatest minds working in this field and and, um, exceptionally talented and and exceptionally giving to me. And um, that was... Just forget, you're talking about David Fincher, of course, just for the... Yes, yes. (laughs) And and working with him um, was just really... A wonderful experience and and I felt like um that I just wanted to that was a job where I really just wanted to do my job as well as I could and and that was um listening to David and Courtney and Josh and um our producers and and uh, getting to the page what they were wanting and it was really a, a, an exceptional process and um I was in you know, I was there for rehearsals for a bit, and that is probably the crash course in um, detail that I never really knew I needed. And and um, it was, you know, I, I, again, I, I Courtney Miles, who was an assistant director on season one of Mindhunter, came on and was the lead writer for season two. And um, I, I, not a lot of people know her name and she deserves so much credit for this. You know, she really was in the trenches with David and during production and throughout post. And I, um, I, she was so supportive for me, to me and, and really just, uh, an extremely talented writer. And so I, I would just want everybody to know who she is and, and read her stuff. And talking about Fincher, one of the things that, you know, I've learned about him through the years is is that every detail he's meticulous on and, and every detail means something. And, and how is he like as a writer to work with? He's amazing as a writer to work with. You know, something that that is really important to me when I work with directors or um, work with producers, but really when you're working with a, a director is they have to know what they want and and they have to know how to be able to tell you what they want. And at the same time, you know, it's nice if they give you the freedom to then try and figure out if they say, I want to get to A to D, you get to figure out what B and C is to get them there. And then you work together to, to find that and crystallize on it. And that's really what the experience was with working with David. And, and he was both extremely articulate of, of not only character arc and and character motivations and plot and all of those things, but was at the same time very giving for how to get there and and what the emotions of those characters would be in in the writing. And so it was a very collaborative process all around and a lot of time, and you know, the really the only way you get to that is just there's a lot of communication between everyone of what is there, what is missing, what, what needs to be added to. And so it was, um, again, it was a, an extremely collaborative process and extremely detail oriented. And, and I feel like I've been very fortunate in my career to feel like I've I, at least hopefully become a better writer in each process, but I don't know that I have made such a jump as I did during Mindhunter, because I think one of just sort of how long I was on the project and how long 
um, I was writing that. And so having time to fine tune sort of the craft in that way. But um, I, I feel like I personally made a jump in that. And that was really exciting and, and completely due to David and to Courtney and Josh and everybody involved. What about the research process for this? I mean, there's a lot that, you know, we, we read, uh, the viewers, you know, that the, there's a, there are real tapes and, and real, you know, of the serial killers and the interviews. And how, how, what, what was the research for you like? Did you listen to these tapes? So the research process was done um, primarily by uh, Courtney and Josh before I came on. So there was a lot of information to digest. Um, oftentimes when I come onto a project, that's a true story. I'm the one and, and I have an assistant who does a lot of the research with me. And so it's the two of us sort of sitting there and either talking to the real people or going through books or articles or whatever it is. Um, in this scenario, I walked in and they had done all of that work. And so there were, you know, at, at, as you know, you've seen um, the Atlanta child murders are the, you know, sort of backbone of this season. And so there were a lot of, um, there was a lot to read about that. And there was a lot to kind of digest about those murders and, and um, John Douglas, who the um, series is based on his book, he had participated in the Atlanta child murders. So it was reading what his interpretation was of it. And, um, so, and he's a consultant on the project, of, of course. So, um, Courtney talking to him and sort of getting, you know, getting interpretations of what had happened in that in terms of the serial killers, you know, I, I co-wrote the Charles Manson episode and the, which is episode six, I think five, right? Five. It's all off my head. Um, and the, the writer I wrote that with is a woman named Pamela Cedarquist and she had done an enormous amount of research on Manson and on Tex Watson. And I then did, I hope, a good, a good amount of research as well on my own of just trying to get their voice down and, and their voices down and um, understand how they would speak. And at the same time, give a different, perhaps, display of both of them than people had seen that we felt was equally honest. Yeah, because I read, I mean, it's pretty intense. I read that Holt McNally, he actually went and met Bobby Beausoleil, who was a former Manson family member, and, and, and spent like hours talking to him. Um, mm -hmm. That must have been pretty intense, a real method acting <laughs> scenario. I mean, Holt is incredible. Um, I'm so excited that this season people are getting to see what he's capable of. And, and you know, we're sort of have a wealth of riches with the talents and on this show. And I think between Holt and Jonathan Groff and Anna Tor, it's really great. Um, it's, it's, you can write anything because they can really do anything. But um, Holt, I, th I think is somebody that people didn't know the levels that he was capable of. And um, it was really exciting this year to be able to focus on that and, bring his story to the forefront a little bit and also the actors that play all the, the you know the serial killers and, and mm. it, what's that vibe like on set because some of them are I mean or all of them are just eerily I mean not identical but you get the whole sort of very eerie feeling as a writer there's nothing stranger than hearing people say your words out loud period it can it doesn't have to be somebody playing charles manson it's anybody saying your words out loud it's just uh, not a feeling you ever get over and i hope i don't ever get over it because it's it's great but at the same time um when you see damon harriman who plays charles manson in, in 
um, this season of Mindhunter, um, when you see him step out uh, as Charles Manson and stick his tongue out, it's it's a little, it's very eerie. And it's it's very, I remember watching that for the first time and just being stunned and, and so impressed by not only Damon's performance, but Andrew Dominic, who directed that episode, I, I just, I was stunned by how they, how far they'd gone um, in, in such an amazing way. Yeah, so you, you mentioned you wrote episode five in, in an already incredible series. Um, this is just an outstanding um, episode. It, it contains three major interviews where the, the characters interview um, serial killers. I wanted to ask you, Manson, he, it's sort of... Uh, his year, um, if I can, I can say it that way. I mean, he's been in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and here, um, and these gruesome murders are, are you know, on, in several pop cultural arenas right now. Why do you think he resonates at the moment? It's a good question. Um, I'm not sure. I, I, you know, I, I personally um, have always felt very interested in Manson and in the murders um, and the time of that, you know, the, the era of of those horrific deaths. And um, my mom grew up in Los Angeles and she was a, a teenager during that time. And so I grew up sort of hearing about that and um, knowing kind of the real fear. I mean, she, the, the true, true fear she had during that time. And it was always something that stuck with me and, and really struck me as this just bizarre era that existed and was really the shifting from when, for lack of a better phrase, from being children to adults, sort of culturally, and from a fantasy to a reality. Um, I, I think, not, not to get super political or super um, global about it, but I think, you know, we are in a very uncomfortable time in our history and in our political history, in our world history. I mean, I hope it's history at some point, but I guess in our current state. And I think there's a shift that's happening. And, and I think whenever a shift happens, people start to look at the past. You know, something I experienced in the post was... Um, when people saw it and people had never heard anything about the Pentagon Papers, they were like, oh, my God, this is so much like what's happening now. And we were like, yeah, history is cyclical. Um, so, the, you know, I think um, that is that is something that people naturally do is look to the past to kind of explain the present. And I, I can't I don't know why um, the Manson murders are so prevalent right now, but I think there is the aspect of you know, were we all kind of living in a fantasy and are we all now stuck with the reality now? And this dialogue that he has mm -hmm. with um, Holden and, and Tench here, it's a, it's a very, it's quite a long mono. Tell me about that. How much is based on a real interview? And, and because it so well plays into the real, what's happening with Tench and his, in his own family life. You eat meat with your teeth, you kill things that are better than you, and then you say your children are killers. No, I'm saying you're a killer. I have killed no one. You ordered them to go to that I house and no slaughter everyone killed. there. I did not direct anyone to do anything other than what they wanted to do. You didn't stop them either. I always let children go. If he falls, that is how he learns. You become strong by falling. You're not supposed to let children fall. You're supposed to guide them. Guide them into what? 
Guide them into what you've guided them into? You fucking midgets. <laughs> this anger that you're feeling, Agent Ted, this is just the anger that you got for you. Find someone else to put yourself on. I'm tired of being your goat. I'm tired of being your reflection. You're not my reflection. I've always been yours. I've been in your cell since I was eight years old. Um, a lot of it was from Manson himself, from things he had said, you know, sort of things we had interpreted and things that he had alluded to or things that he'd outright said, you know, over the course of many years. And it was really coming from uh, the, the one, I think one of the reasons that scene frankly resonates and, and w- resonated with me and I was excited to be a part of it was because it was really coming from a vulnerable place of Holt and Holt was, you know, kind of living in this place where he was going to ignore and ignore, ignore what was happening in his personal life and is now confronted very unexpectedly with somebody who is telling him it's all his fault. Um, which is the thing that he's been trying to suppress, at least in my interpretation. And I think that was really exciting to have um, one of these interviews and not only one of the interviews, but the interviews with Manson, not only just be about Manson and why he did the things he did and the psychology or psychopathy of him, but um, about Holt and about how Holt is interpreting that and, and it really having a personal drive. I, I, you know, for me as just a viewer of watching season one, um, that I think was why the Kemper scenes really resonated with me was the personal connection between Jonathan's character Holden and Ed Kemper. And so, yes. And so I think that was something that was exciting for me about exploring the Manson Holt and Holden interview or excuse me, Manson Tension Holden interview. And um, I I think that started it all was really that was the shape of how we all wanted to get there. And, and Andrew Dominic, the director of the episode, was really involved in how the that interview shaped out and what kind of the path was to getting there and uh, in that episode. And so it, the text was a real collaboration between Pamela and myself and things Pamela had written before. And then I came on later and sort of we passed it back and forth. And um, Courtney Miles came in and would tell us what was good and what wasn't good. And then uh, David would come in and tell us what was good and what it wasn't good. And Andrew would come in. And so it was, you know, again, it was a real collaboration. And I think, um, and, and I think the point of it, again, that made it interesting. And uh, at least you know, for me, watching it is interesting, is that there is uh, a a war happening between, with intention, there is a war happening visually between Manson and Tension, that it is being expressed verbally. And um, so I, I just think there's a lot of layers to that scene that were really exciting to be a part of. How do Holden and Tension interrogate differently? Well, I think it's very dependent on the interview, you know, um, for instance, in um, the Son of Sam interview, um, Tench is very nervous if Holden's going to be able to do it. And so there's kind of the play back and forth of this is Holden's first interview after his panic attack. Is this something that he's going to be able to really do? And then you see him um, step up and be capable of it. Um, I think in the Manson interview, 
what was also exciting is that had been set up in previously in season one is that and then is resonated again or reiterated again in in this I believe the second episode of season two is that um, Charles Manson is Holden's goal is that that's the only person he wants to interview and he's almost a fan you know I mean he's listening to Manson's music um, so it's right he has his book to sign exactly yeah. it's, there's sort of almost like a perverse obsession with it which I don't think is out of context of a lot of people at that time and a lot of people now I mean there is sort of this perverse fascination with who Charles Manson is and um, I wouldn't even say perverse there's just a fascination um, you know Karina Longworth did an, an exceptional long series podcast um, that I didn't listen to until much later and uh, you know really delving into his past and and, and to who he why he became the way he became um, or if there's a why you know but I, I thought that that was really fascinating so that's sort of the world that Holden is in or the, or the person that Holden is whereas Tench I think is much more along the lines of Wendy and Tor's character in this, which is, you know, Manson didn't kill anybody. Manson doesn't necessarily fit in to this study that they're doing. And at the same time, Pench doesn't respect Manson and doesn't have any interest in hearing what he has to say and is coming from a really broken place personally. So I think there's, you, it's great for you as a screenwriter, when you're writing a scene and all three characters are wanting completely opposite things. And in this Manson, Manson just, you know, really wants to fuck with them. So on the one hand, Holden is uh, a fan and fascinated and wants to know more. And on the other, Tench just wants to get out of there as quickly as possible and, and then ends up getting roped into Manson's master plan. In the interview that comes after that Holden does with Tex which was the one the person who actually did um, commit the murders it's incredibly eerie because there you can hear um, uh, voices which you don't in the other interviews you can hear sort of Sharon Tate like screaming in the background very subtly Um, um, I was wondering is that something that you guys wrote or was something that Andrew brought it was something that came in post Um, I'm not sure who came up with it. <laughs> um, but it was something very early on in post that came up and we talked about whether whether it worked or whether it didn't work or what it did. And I think everyone making this episode, everybody involved has a great respect and reverence for the people who were murdered and, and feel that that's not, you know, we, we didn't want to make this like a we didn't want to disrespect them in any way. And, and I think what, at least for me, those, those voices did was really bring you back to what this man did and, and what Manson was a part of and, and bring back the reality of, you know, Manson may be a showboat and Tex is, you know, for me in many ways, a complete anomaly, but they still murdered these people. And, and it was really gruesome and 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 without conscience and so I think that was really important to lay over a scene where Tex Watson is you know and a lot of Texas again a lot of Texas dialogue came from things he had said or again things we'd interpreted and so you know coming from somebody who was repentant and 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 trying I think to say that he has been forgiven but at the same time, like, how can you be forgiven for doing that? And, and those, you know, 
the people who have been murdered don't forgive you. So I think that for me was how I interpreted the choice. And I, I really, um, you never get those voices out of your head. No, you don't. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, as sort of pop culture consumers all our lives, we've there's certain aspects of police work and, and sort of predictive behavior. Um, this becomes sort of broad knowledge, like things like Hannibal Lecter or that, you know, that maybe torturing small animals is a predictive behavior or something like that. What did you learn about behavioral psychology and police work that actually surprised you? Well, I don't know if it's predictive psychology or, or, or psychology in any way, but I and I don't know that it's something I didn't know, but I think it's fascinating. I mean, I think it's just sort of the through line through a lot of this is that people always want to be the hero of their own story. And that means that villains want to be the most villainous of their own story. Um, and, you know, that's something that I've experienced throughout um, my career in, in doing true stories and speaking to people is, is everyone will always say they were in the room when a decision was made, even though if there's four other people that say, no, I was the one in the room when the decision was made, there, there's oftentimes a through line of people wanting to be the hero. And that I think carries through to, I mean, and very specifically sort of in the Manson and tech stuff is, you know, it, it is who's taking responsibility for this and, and who is owning it and and what does it say about somebody who's owning it right and even when Kemper asks like uh, I mean he, he you can see that he's sort of happy about copycats um he's sort of asking them if, yeah. if this is someone who's you can tell that he wants to be the one that they're copying the other serial killers yeah for sure now are, can, do you bring your work with you does it affect you spending weeks and weeks writing Manson dialogue or are you good at um no I you know it doesn't really there there was one st- the, the BTK um storyline is something that um I think stuck with me while I was writing it just because I did delve into the research of him quite a bit and he's quite terrifying um so that stuck with me a little bit but um no I I honestly try and let it all go and and I, I can't I have to I have to at a certain point look at them as characters um and I don't mean that in sort of a disrespectful or nonchalant way but I have to just look at them as people that I'm writing on a page um so that I can go to sleep at night you were mentioning the Atlanta child murders which are the sort of major through line of, of the season and very gruesome and and certainly that really mirrors our time. You can feel. Um, did you guys mm-hmm. talk about this? You know, when I had come on, they had already decided again that that was to be the backbone of the season, and we definitely talked about. You know, I think all, all the conversations, if not more, that happened in the show, which is, you know, this is a poor black community that is being preyed upon and is being ignored because it's a poor black community, um, by the greater, you know, city of Atlanta, by the greater state of Georgia, and then by, you know, this United States as a whole. And so I think that was definitely something that we were aware of and, and I I was aware of. And, um, I, I, I don't know that there's any sort of topical conversations in terms of our current reality that, that I can draw upon. I'm sure we had them. Um, but that, you know, that was definitely 
something that we were talking about and felt like an important thing to shine a light on um, now. And um, it's really, it's not a case that I had heard very much about before becoming involved in the show. I, I don't think it's a case that many people know about um, before they watch the show. And so I do think there is an awareness of that these things have happened, this happened, and the lasting effects of it were that, you know, it really didn't, once Wayne William was was arrested and, and indicted, it kind of went away rather than becoming a part of how do we make this stuff happen. I don't know this actually, Wayne. I mean, there's some dispute whether he actually, he wasn't um, charged for the children's murders, but uh, did the killings actually stop after he was arrested? They had, I mean, the, the murders had wound down um by the time he was arrested and i think it kind of depends on who you speak to of whether or not there were certain murders that came up after his arrest that fit the profile um but i you know they they did stop around that time um i i i think i'm speaking more to a global uh, a lack of of awareness for when bad things happen in 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 lower income areas or po- or impoverished areas, I'm not even speaking in the United States, speaking around the world. That it's that it's just much easier to turn a blind eye if you can blame it on somebody and and say it's over and not and not sort of fix the systematic issues. You had one director each on on your episodes. You had Andrew Dominic and you also called Carl Franklin which are seriously genius direct, uh, directors mm-hmm. in their own right. Um, what did they bring and how were they different? So Andrew, I worked with a lot. Um, he was, um, so I was, I was writing a movie um, concurrent sort of, sort of towards the end of, of my time on Mindhunter. I then was um, in pre-production on a film and um, I, I, spent a lot of time with Andrew talking about Charles Manson and talking about Tex Watson and talking about, um, a lot about Wendy and Kay's storyline and, and, um, that, and episode, those two episodes that, that Andrew directed. And so that was, you know, I think Andrew is extremely, is, is in similar, similar ways to David, extremely interested in the details and extremely interested in the emotional arc of who these characters are and why they're doing these things and, and, and how can we interpret them um, to a affect the audience and, and affect the, but mostly affect the characters. And so that was, that was, you know, a, a good amount of time that we spent on, you know, I think it was about three or four weeks working specifically on the Charles Manson and Tex Watson scenes. Um, and this was after they had been written and, and then, was really fine tuning them with Andrew and David. Um, the, with Carl, I really, I didn't interact with him a huge amount because I, I was already, um, unfortunately in production on, on the movie. And so, um, what I can say is that his notes are exceptional and that, um, he brings just a completely different, um, energy that, and, and has such a command of what, he's doing and what this story is and I mean he's just such a pro so it's um it's it's really again it was a wealth of riches with my who I worked with on this show I I have no complaints you were mentioning that it was a long process with those two particular um 
scenes, the Manson and the text, which you can really see. I mean, they are sort of TV history already at just a couple weeks after being aired. Um, do you have an idea of how long the filming of those took? It was a while. I mean, it was definitely, I, I don't want to give a number because again, I wasn't there, so I can't say exactly how many days it was, but it was more than a couple days. Um, and it was, uh, which, which, you know, we all knew going in that, that these scenes had to be, you know, kind of the center of the season and in a lot of ways. And, and that these, these, these two scenes had to, particularly the Manson scene really had to shift Tench kind of into a different direction, a little bit emotionally and give him a lot of things to think about. And, um, you know, there's, there's a moment in the seventh episode where he's looking at the cross and, and while they're building the crosses. And so there were things that we wanted to kind of have resonate with him post the Manson interviews that maybe wouldn't have resonated with him previous to them. Um, and so they were, I think, very clearly from the beginning, given the time that they needed to get. And, and that meant in, in the writing process and the pre-production process and the production and then in post is just making sure that the time was given to give those scenes the weight that they needed. Right. What can you tell us about season three, if anything? Is there one? <laughs> I can tell you nothing. <laughs> Sorry. Ah, oh, I thought that would be your answer. But um, but then I have to ask you, but you were mentioning that you were writing a movie, and I've also read about a very exciting project called um, Bad Girls. Tell me about the new yeah. project you have coming up. So I um, wrote, I adapted a book called All the Bright Places, um, which... Uh, we, I, I came on to a number of years ago, actually, and um, it was right around the time I sold the post. Um, and Elle Fanning is, stars and is a producer, and it's co-stars Justice Smith, um, and is directed by Brett Haley. And we did it for Netflix last summer slash winter in um, Cleveland. And hopefully, we will have some um, announcement news for that very soon. Um, we're waiting on on the right time <laughs> to announce them. Um, but it's a movie I'm exceptionally proud of. It's a very hard story. It's about a girl who has recently dealt with death and sort of a boy who wants to bring her back kind of to life and bring her back into the world. And I think a lot of our conversations about it, um, and by we, I mean, Brett Haley, the director and myself and the producers, um, including Al and Justice, really wanted to make a film that resonated with everyone and wasn't mm -hmm. um, simply a, a film for teenagers, but was a film that we had grown up with, you know, when we were kids that we look back on and we still love, you know, um, movies that like Badlands, which is about teenagers, was a big reference for us. And so trying to make something that was resonant and cinematic um, while dealing with, you know, issues of mental health and loss and things that I think are really universal that sometimes can be used as plot um, we wanted to have kind of larger emotional conversations about so um, we made that so hopefully that's uh, the announcement for that is coming soon and then um, Bad Girls is a series that I've been working with on, I've been working on for about two years um, we uh, set it up at UCP um, and my um, producer's Brittany Kahn and Graciela Sanchez, they're my managers who I've known for, you know, 10 years and have stuck with me through 
all of the good and the bad and all of the making projects and not making anything. Um, and so it really started, the impetus of that was that after I sold the post, I was uh, very fortunately getting, getting asked to do a lot of biopics. And, uh, I think the, you know, two things really resonated with me. One was the fact that I should not, I personally should not be the barometer of every woman's story. Um, I haven't had every woman's experience and I definitely shouldn't be the voice of every woman's experience. And, uh, however, because I had written the post, people were coming to me for that. And so I really wanted to find a way to tell women's stories. I, I believe that looking at how women in history have, succeeded and failed is is important for everybody not just women but for everyone to understand and to and to see all the facets of women and that they're fun and messy and mean and wonderful and um so that that was that and that was one reason and the other reason was I wanted to give the opportunity for other women to tell the stories of women that they wanted to tell and tell them with their point of view. This is like an anthology series. It's an anthology. Yes. It's women in history. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's an anthology series about women in history. Every episode will be written and directed and starring a different team. Um, It's really exciting. We kind of want to tell these stories in a different way. We want them to be, you know, sort of punk rock or, or just vibrant and exciting. And, And so we're really thrilled about that. And hopefully there'll be some more news about that very soon. Wow, I'm I'm so looking forward to both of these projects and to Mindhunter Three, which you won't tell us anything about. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Liz. Thank you so much for taking your time. This was really interesting and exceptional to oh. get a look into your brain, um, the writing process. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much to Liz Hanna. Mindhunter Season 1 and 2 are on Netflix now and catch the post and long shot streaming. And thank you so much for listening. I love to get your feedback on the interview. So please send me your comments on Twitter at Christina Biro, on Instagram at Pop Culture Confidential. And remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This show was edited by Julia Scott and I'm Christina Yerling Biro. See you next time.
I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. (laughs) Right.